0: following podcast contains explicit language. Hide your children.
1: Hi, I'm Stefan Fatsis, the author of the books Word Freak and A Few Seconds of Panic, and this is Hang Up and Listen for the week of June 8, 2020. On this week's show, we'll discuss the National Football League's about-face, on the rights of its players to advocate peacefully against racism and police brutality, and whether that about-face is genuine. As sports leagues ramp up to resume play, we'll assess the very different roads being taken by the National Basketball Association and Major League Baseball. Finally, we'll talk with Bao Nguyen, the director of ESPN's latest 30 for 30 documentary, Be Water, about the life of martial arts movie legend, Bruce Lee. I'm still in the attic of my home in Washington, D.C. Joining me from another part of the city is Josh Levine, Slate's national editor and the author of the National Book Critics Circle Award winner, the
0: queen which is out in paperback hello josh i get gassed up uh more when I'm not hosting the show. I got to do this more often. I know.
1: Totally pumps up the sales when you're not hosting. Uh, appreciate it, my friend. And with us from Palo Alto, California, is Slate's staff writer and the host of Slow Burn
2: Season 3, Joel Anderson. What's up, Joel? What's up, man? I'm about to be dethroned as a Slow Burn King this week. I was <laughs> well, just
1: okay. about to say that. We <laughs> loved Slow Burn Season 3 about Tupac and Biggie. Joel... But it is time to move on. It's time for Slow Burn Season (laughs) 4, David Duke. It is reported and hosted, as some of you know, by Josh Levine. There will be six episodes, some programming details. The trailer went out on Monday. Please check that out. And the series will be available starting Wednesday, June 10th. Slate Plus members will be able to receive the first three episodes on Wednesday. If you're not a Plus member, you can listen to episode one on Wednesday and the rest week by week. After that, I managed to score a bootleg copy of the first episode. <laughs> it's fantastic. It's really good. Josh. Yeah. It's really good. T- tell us a little bit about what we can expect.
0: So yeah, there's a guy um, selling them out of the trunk of his car. You just need to know. <laughs> <laughs> where, where he's parked.
1: It was hard to tell who he was with the face mask and sunglasses.
2: But
0: otherwise, just get them on the, the internet.
2: That's very New Orleans of you, by the way, selling it out of the trunk of your car. I appreciate that. That's a very Gulf Coast thing to do.
0: Yeah, I mean, it's it's <laughs> it's uh, an honor to be uh, in Joel's company as a Slow Burn host. And it's been a process to, to get this thing done. But I'm excited for folks to hear it. The David Duke story is one that... I wanted to tell for a really long time, since I was growing up in New Orleans in the 80s and 90s, he was kind of a looming presence in all of our lives back then. But I didn't really understand, um, because I was just a, a kid then, really who, where he came from and and the background of it and and really everything that was going on around him during those years. So it's been really interesting to report it out. It feels like a resonant and important story to be telling now. And I'm excited for folks to hear it. Um, And as you were saying, Stefan, there is um, a a nice bonus here for Slate Plus members that you can get the first three episodes right away. It's the first time we've done that. And as far as our schedule goes, this week's episode of Hang Up is going to be Um, available for everyone, and we're going to go back to our um, Slate Plus schedule next week. That's a lot of programming notes for the top of the show, but if you want to subscribe to Slate Plus, you can do it either through slate.com slash slowburn or slate.com slash plus. They go to the same place, but you'll get a lot of good stuff with your membership. It's only $35 for the first year. I would also like to say, since I'm talking a lot here, that Joel, uh, there was a photo of Joel in the New York Times over the weekend as part of a piece oh, about uh, reporters who went to Ferguson, and which Joel did when he was at BuzzFeed and did a lot of great work there. Um, and we should focus on that. But Joel was photographed wearing a Houston Oilers cap. And mm-hmm. before um, we started recording, Joel and I were wondering, before this weekend, what was the last time the Houston Oilers logo appeared in the New York Times? You don't have any idea, do you, Joel?
2: I mean, maybe there's a retrospective. Like maybe if, you know, they did a story on War Moon getting inducted to the Hall of Fame, maybe, you know, in the, in the 2000s or in the last decade or so. But other than that, man, I mean, it couldn't, I don't know. Maybe I'm being naive here, but I, it'd have to be like since the 90s, I'd imagine. I mean, they haven't existed since 96.
0: Let's make this a group project. Email hangup at slate.com if you want to help us research. Prior to Joel Anderson on June 7th, 2020, <laughs> was the last time the Houston Oilers logo or iconography appeared in the New York Times. We appreciate your service. Joel, were
1: you, were you a big fan of the Houston Oilers song?
2: Houston oh, Oilers. Houston, Houston Oilers, Oilers. Houston, Houston Oilers, Oilers. Houston, Houston Oilers, Houston Oilers number Oilers one, 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 one. Yeah. Yeah, which is also uh, the Miami Dolphins uh, fight song as well, apparently. I didn't realize <laughs> that until I was older, but uh, it, it, it wasn't a lot of creativity that went into it's making like that song. It's like Twinkle,
0: Twinkle, yeah. Little Star, ABC song. Yeah, exactly, <laughs> exactly,
2: <laughs> pretty much, yeah. <laughs>
1: Nine days ago, NFL Commissioner Roger Goodell put his name on a statement about the death of George Floyd that was explicitly crafted to say nothing at all. The NFL family, it started, family, is greatly saddened by the tragic events across our country. All you really need to know about the rest of the statement was that it did not include the words racism, police, or brutality. So when NFL players contacted by league social media staffers working independent of their bosses responded by producing a powerful video telling the league to do the bare minimum and denounce racism and police violence, Goodell had an opening for a do over. He recorded a video with the production quality of the Apollo 11 moonwalk, but also sentences literally saying exactly what the players asked him to say.
3: We, the National Football League, condemn racism and the systematic oppression of black people. We, the National Football League, admit we were wrong for not listening to NFL players earlier and encourage all to speak out and peacefully protest. We, the National Football League, believe black lives matter.
1: Joel, you wrote about this in Slate over the weekend. You didn't see Goodell's statement as especially heroic or even believable. You called his new stance a morally bankrupt commitment to shifting with the winds of what its white fans find acceptable, meaning, I think, that it was less a response to the protesting players, whose position really hasn't changed in the four years since Colin Kaepernick took a knee, than a recognition that it's now politically safe to say the words, Black
2: Lives Matter. Do I have that right? That's right. Right. It's hard to view Goodell's video Friday, which was, you know, came out less than 24 hours after the player's video, as anything other than a product of timing and a sharp change in public sentiment. But, but before I I go off on that, I should mention that it's still important to signal that some things are beyond debate, even if it's not necessarily an authentic expression of your views. So while it's important to have sincere action undergirding those words, it's also important as a civil society to say protest is fine. Racial discrimination is wrong, if only to signal to people that decency is the key to all of us living in peace. So it's like how people know not to say the N-word unless you've got a strong chin. And I'd prefer if people didn't want to say the N-word, but I'd be fine with it if you're afraid to say it. In fact, our very great boss, Gabriel Roth, said this about Mitt Romney at the Black Lives Matter protest this week. He tweeted this. He said, this is great not because it says anything about his integrity, but because of what it says about which way the wind is blowing. So given that, as I mentioned in the piece, it's really hard to emphasize how safe and uncontroversial the NFL's timing was over the weekend. They only had to follow the example of Amazon, Netflix, Citigroup, Sephora, Taylor Swift, TikTok, Grindr, Ariana (laughs) Grande, kylie and kendall jenner and so on and so forth right gushers Um,
0: don't forget gushers
2: oh yeah fruit gushers and uh, they actually as a black person i really do appreciate the support they got me through (laughs) some very tough times when i wasn't making a lot of money in journalism so uh, i really appreciate them um but yeah i mean we've all seen the polling that shows that a majority of americans believe now that racism and discrimination is a big problem and that the protesters anger is justified and compare that to 2016 when Colin Kaepernick first started kneeling and nearly three-fourths of Americans thought he was unpatriotic and 61% said they didn't support his protest. So, so much has changed in a short amount of time. And if the NFL and Roger Goodell were the few holdouts on this front, they ran the risk of not only seeming out of step with their black players, but with their white fans. But nobody saw how I was impacted by the sudden change quite like your boy, Drew Brees. Uh, ain't, ain't that right, Josh?
0: Yeah, I think that there was some Drew Brees erasure from Stefan's intro. That's fine. <laughs> uh, I
1: figured we would get to him. Something told me we would talk about Drew Brees. I had a hunch.
0: The Drew Brees statement that he didn't believe in kneeling, still that he would never do it, that he thinks it's disrespectful to the flag in the country because his grandfathers were in the military, um, which is a, you know, a statement right out of 2016. It's really amazing how that kicked off this whole sequence of events. And Joel, talking about how, um, you know, the the way the wind bl- is blowing has changed so quickly, Breeze's own teammates went after him in incredibly harsh terms. Um, and moving, movingly, I mean, Malcolm Jenkins in an in- Instagram video um, talking about how, you know, he looked up to Breeze and Breeze still doesn't get it. And they're, you know, sick of asking for permission about, you know, how to protest and the the methods of protest and ending with, you know, you need to shut the fuck up or whatever it was that he said. It definitely um, included the words, shut the fuck up. Um, (laughs) And then, uh, you know, Alvin Kamara, Michael Thomas, and, you know, Michael Thomas was the one who ended up spearheading the, the move to create that player's video, which then led to Goodell saying Black Lives Matter. Breeze is an interesting figure because he's done a lot of really good charitable stuff for the city of New Orleans. People in New Orleans love that guy. He came right after Katrina. Um, he pledged $5 million you know, during the height of the coronavirus pandemic. He has a foundation that does a lot of stuff. He brought Super Bowl championship. I've got my Super Bowl shirt on uh, here. And there was uh, a chant over the weekend at one of the the protests in New Orleans of, Fuck Drew Brees. And so, I think in the city, it's going to be really interesting to see how this affects people's views of him. It will depend uh, on what his actions are now. But the Saints are a team and an institution in the city that is very important to Black people and white people, all people in New Orleans. And, you know, views on Breeze are gonna vary depending on people's different viewpoints. But it's just so <laughs> remarkable how someone whose like approval rating in the city was like 98%. It immediately plunged with just, you know, a Yahoo Finance, like Zoom call. And I actually watched the full thing And it started with him not being able to unmute himself. If only he had not been able to unmute himself the whole time. Then this all would have come out differently.
1: Yeah, the amazing thing to me about Breeze's video was that the very first thing he thinks is important to say is that he respects the flag and doesn't condone any protests against it. And that's after, you know, two weeks of... of National turmoil. I mean, part of the problem here is that Drew Brees is a mega celebrity athlete who has, as you just described, Josh, a really um, close and, for athletes of that stature, very personal and 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 different kind of relationship with the city that he's played in. At the same time, though, he is a creature of privilege. He is white. He has been trained all along as an as an elite athlete to believe that he should always say something. So the, the knee-jerk, reflexive thing to do in that situation for Drew Brees is respect the flag, der, World War II, der, fought for this country, der, and to believe that those actually have weight and that they are unassailable, that they are correct. Um, they really don't have any meaningful political or intellectual thought, and they didn't four years ago either. Um, they're supposed to pass as unthreatening and universally accepted. And what Drew Brees has learned is that they're not. They haven't been for a hell of a long time, but they certainly aren't anymore. I mean, for Drew Brees, who plays with you know, whose teammates are 75% African American, and you're still saying this shit four years later, and you still think that this is the right thing to say in this moment of crisis is truly remarkable. And I hope he has learned something from this. Well,
2: and it, it also speaks to why people may doubt the sincerity of even some of the statements of other people, because there's a photo on social media going around. Actually, I saw it via uh, Kyle Kuzma's Twitter account of Drew Brees kneeling before a game in London on October first, two thousand seventeen, with his teammates. Like Drew Brees has actually kneeled before, and so, so is Jerry it, Jones. Yes, so is Jerry Jones. So I mean, I, I think about this because we you, you you mentioned Josh, uh, you know uh, the way that his teammates came out against him and how they looked up to him and the relationships they have, and it makes me think about football locker rooms I've been in before, and it suggests that. A lot of these guys just don't talk. Yeah, You know what I mean? Like, has Drew Brees ever had a conversation? Was he ever interested enough in what Malcolm Jenkins had to say or his teammates had to say about protest, Black Lives Matter, racial discrimination prior to this? Because they've been in the locker rooms. He kneeled once upon a time... Why was his understanding of this moment so poor? Why was it so bad? Yeah. And it just suggests that people don't talk. They'll take a stance. They'll take a public stance that maybe they don't understand, but never really change the thinking that undergirds everything that preceded that. That's what calls into question. What is the NFL going to do? What is Roger Goodell going to do going forward? Because if Drew Brees can kneel and still not understand four years later what he was kneeling about, then it makes you sort of question what everybody else is doing right now too.
0: Well, one of the persistent and and most frustrating things about the response to Kaepernick starting in two thousand sixteen was the people who said, "We, he doesn't even know what he's protesting. What is he even protesting?" And then he'd say, "I'm protesting police brutality and like systematic oppression of black people." And then after that, people were like, "What is he even protesting? Like, he hasn't even said what like what is he so mad about?" And what we've seen in the last two weeks is that when you got maybe millions of people in the streets across America, maybe suddenly people's hearing gets a little bit better um, <laughs> somehow. And maybe when you have the whole uh, world yelling at you and telling you that you uh, are wrong and that what you said is stupid and blinkered and offensive, um, then maybe... You're inclined to listen. So the problem wasn't Colin Kaepernick. It was never Colin Kaepernick. The issue was that um there was no imperative. There was no kind of s- sanction or censure against people who pretended that they didn't understand what he was talking about. right. And it is pretend
1: that is exactly right. and 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 I think it's reflected in the way that Goodell's statement has been covered. Um, was covered over the weekend. The Washington Post did a long story talking to people close to Goodell and people close to the NFL and deliberations, and the story wants to portray, or at least Goodell's backers want to portray him as acting boldly from a place of conscience, that he always felt this way, but he was hamstrung by the owners whom he reports to, um, and that he took this decision to release this video without any involvement or consultation from owners, seven or so Of whom I believe donated a million dollars apiece to Trump's inauguration. So we're all justified in being skeptical here because, again, going back to four years ago, you know, what should have happened was Roger Goodell, who is the commissioner of the most powerful, certainly in its own estimation, sports league in America, had the ability to stand up and say, Kaepernick is not wrong. We respect our players. Racism is bad. We're going to do better to educate our customers. If you're listening, customers, and we're going to do better to educate our owners. I mean, it really wasn't a very hard thing to do. And yet still, even after all of this, there are quotes in this post story from, again, someone close to the process saying, this makes it very difficult for an owner to go in another direction. We'll face a backlash, no doubt, from a certain percentage of fans. What owner should go in a different direction? Isn't the point here that that direction doesn't exist in a moral universe?
2: Absolutely, and I mean, I've also heard and read about Roger Goodell's personal preferences along the lines of protest, and you know, having Colin Kaepernick back in the league, and that he is in many ways more progressive than his than his owners, right? Well, at what point, at what point should your good intention stop inoculating you from people interrogating your actions? And one thing that Roger Goodell is going to have to think about is that. It's not even really him that pushed this. It was a, ro- a quote, rogue 25-year-old NFL social media employee yeah. who put together this video in collaboration with the players behind Roger Goodell's back. And basically they pre- presented it to him and Roger Goodell had no other option, right? So at what point is Roger Goodell going to have to stand up to – either he's going to have to stand up to these owners – or he's going to have to resign because he he should have enough dignity to say, well, hey, look, I'm not going to take the slings and arrows for you guys for so much long, well, but for so much longer.
0: The Mitt Romney analogy is perfect for yep. Goodell. He's Mitt Romney, and the owners are a bunch of Donald Trumps, except the owners are, I think, smarter than than Trump and are able to keep their views a little bit more um, hidden. I mean, not that much more, but a little bit more. Um, but anyway, Goodell. Could very well be somebody who privately thinks that everything that the owners have done around Kaepernick and the the views of the owners are abhorrent. Maybe he's maybe he's like like super far to the left. Who's to say? But Joel is a you're you're exactly right. It's that you know the thing that's been so frustrating about whether it's Mitt Romney or Jeff Flake or Ben Sass or Lisa Murkowski or Susan Collins or any number of. Other people who could, um, you know, constrain or be a, a check against what's what's been happening from the executive branch is that they say things but don't do anything. And so, do you maybe you actually deserve less credit rather than more? He could quit if he wants. I mean, he's got enough money to be, you know, happy and provide for generations of Goodells. Um, like, what is he, uh, you know, what is he doing in that job if he's so, you know, it f- feels like he can't fully express himself and his like liberal views on race. <laughs>
2: <laughs> yeah, right. And I mean, the thing is, is that all of this comes back, at least in terms of the NFL, back to Colin Kaepernick, right? And his exile, continued exile from the NFL is real evidence of where the NFL via its owners stand on Black Lives Matter and protest. And I, I remember reading in one of those ESPN.com stories that recreated those panicked NFL meetings from 2017. And it was either Don Van Notta or Seth Wickersham that pointed out that at least some of those owners truly loathed Colin Kaepernick, that they did not like him and thought that he was a problem, not just a financial problem, but they fundamentally disagreed Mm -hmm. with him and where he stood. So we know that the owners are the real obstacles here. And so that's why it would be very meaningful, even if they only signaled in a way that Mitt Romney did, hey, where's Jerry Jones? He loves cameras. He loves talking. Like why? Why have we not heard from him? Where's Robert Kraft? Another guy loves cameras, loves being out front. You know, on prison reform and everything else. Why, where has he been in the middle of this?
0: The odds that Kaepernick is going to be on an NFL roster definitely increased this week, don't you think? I mean, maybe they went from zero percent to two percent. Yeah, but I, I think it definitely went up. I mean, you would you would still be shocked, Joel, if Kaepernick ends up on a team. Ah, uh,
2: man, Cam Newton isn't even on the team right now. Yeah, you know, <laughs> you know, which is a, a sort of, sort of a totally different reason. But I just there's it's really hard to discuss or to figure out like nfl owners movements i mean who was it it was the the chicago bears lineman Ikeem hicks who said how do i know that we were blackballing colin kaepernick we signed sean glennon you know what i mean so there are a lot I, i'm still not convinced that we'll ever see colin kaepernick in the nfl if only also he's been out of the nfl for four years you know what i mean like that's a long time um eventually you'd imagine there'd be some erosion there but um you sound like yeah.
0: an nfl owner
2: Yeah, I do. Well, I, I have such a low bar, uh, for them in their, you know, in, in their beliefs. I mean, I don't, I don't, I don't believe that they'll ever, I mean, I don't think we'll ever hear or see them say anything that would impress us regarding Black Lives Matter and, and or racial discrimination. I mean, just consider it was just a few months ago that the NFL and Roger Goodell we're talking about tweaking the Rooney rule because there's so few black coaches and front office officials relative to the percentage of players in the labor force. So the NFL has like all these problems with racial discrimination at every single level within its league that they have not addressed. What would make me think that they're prepared to deal with any of them right now just because there's been a public shifting of the wounds.
1: Yeah, the sociologist Harry Edwards was quoted in that Washington Post story saying of Goodell's statement, it doesn't mean anything. If you're sitting on top of an organization that has three black coaches, two black GMs, and Colin Kaepernick hanging over the entire NFL organization like a shroud, you can't stand up and say, oh, okay, we get it. It's too late for that. They have to do something about it. And that's why this, you know, this first news cycle about Goodell's conversion and the importance of making these statements public is a step, yeah, but it's a remarkable one, too. I mean, the other telling detail in that piece that really stuck with me was how someone described how Goodell became emotional when relating that he had received an email from an employee who used the word hopelessness. It struck him on a personal level, and he was inspired to reach out and talk, blah, blah, blah. I mean, all these rich white guys only now realizing that Black people don't like racism? Give me a break. (laughs) Do something about it, NFL.
0: (laughs) Apple Card is the perfect cash back rewards credit card. You earn up to 3% daily cash on every purchase, every day. That's 3% on your favorite products at Apple, 2%, on all other Apple Card with Apple Pay purchases and 1% on anything you buy with your titanium Apple Card or virtual card number. Visit apple.co slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA, Salt Lake City Branch. Subject to credit approval. Terms apply.
1: A little programming note here, after we recorded our next segment about baseball and basketball's plans to resume play, there was news. Major League Baseball is reported to have made a new counter offer to its players, while the proposal appears to meet the players around halfway in terms of the number of games that would be played in a shortened season. It also calls for the players to take additional pay cuts which they seem unlikely to do. So the substance of our
2: conversation is pretty much unaffected. Here's Joel. So much is going on in the world right now that you maybe missed that we should be in the middle of baseball season right now. It's not clear when baseball is going to be back, and not just for public health reasons. ESPN's Jeff Paston has reported that the owners and players are at an impasse over how many games should be played this year and how they should distribute the money generated by those games. Meanwhile, the NBA has been a model of labor peace. The league and the players union have agreed to a return to play plan that will have teams back on the court on July 31st at the Walt Disney World Resort in Orlando. Stefan, there's a huge contrast here. What do you think that says about these two leagues? Well, it says a lot about the state of the
1: relationships between the respective commissioners and players unions in the two sports. The simplest observation is that the NBA and its players negotiated directly to reach an agreement on both the terms of a restart, where how many teams, what format, and the health and safety stuff. Reporting has specifically cited the close working relationship between NBA Commissioner Adam Silver and the union president, Chris Paul, and also the direct talks with the executive director of the union, Michelle Roberts. Other leagues, including the NHL, Major League Soccer, the National Women's Soccer League, have also negotiated with players to get a restart. Baseball's management and union, meanwhile, have been trading proposals at the extremes of what each side wants. A huge part of the issue is a pre-existing culture of distrust. It's important to remember that uh, before the coronavirus, we were looking at a potential work stoppage when the collective bargaining agreement runs out in 2021. The owners have done everything in their power to keep salaries down. And the union's answer to all this has been brinksmanship. One source told Passon, both sides have created through ignorance and deceit their own universes. The owners are convinced they're victims. The players are convinced they're aggrieved. It's two echo chambers. I mean, I don't know if both sides in it is the right way to go there, but there's some truth, I think, in that analysis.
0: Owners are also key here, right? I mean, we just mentioned how, at least within this last week, we haven't heard much from owners in the NFL in Major League Baseball, you at least get the sense that it's the owners that are running the show here as far as, um, you know, that end of the negotiations. Whereas with all the reporting on the NBA, it just feels like it's Adam Silver, Michelle Roberts, Chris Paul, and then actually Bob Iger, the Disney guy. Yeah. Um, and and Bob Iger and Chris Paul have a, a good relationship. Uh, Bob Iger's been a mentor to Chris Paul, uh, strangely enough. So, um, you know, Adam Silver got the owners to approve this plan where only 22 of the 30 uh, teams come back and you got 29 of the owners to approve it. So even the ones that aren't going to be allowed to play are like, all right, this seems like it's for the best interests of the league. Um, And so I I think the thing we have to consider along with everything you said, Stefan, is that the model in in baseball, the business model is, so much more dependent on gate Mm -hmm. revenue and concessions and um, you know, all the stuff. uh, Yeah. Tickets, everything. It's like the league says it's 40% of revenue. And so there's actually, um, I think not even like a funny math, like in a real world way, the owners will lose money by putting on games with no fans. And so that is a difference. Um, you know, we're, we're not going to be able to run a controlled experiment here, but um, I'd imagine it wouldn't have been as easy for the NBA if the, if their business model was similar to baseball's.
2: Yeah. It's also really interesting to me. Well, first of all, actually, before I get started, can we just admit that I was right all along that we were going to see sports this year? Cause I, the, the money can, can we admit that? Yeah. Yeah josh
0: but not the xfl
2: yeah, yeah but, I, mean, uh, I
0: thought you were talking about the xfl so. <laughs> okay yeah no. it's not no, too late, it's no, not too right. late for right. the
2: xfl josh that's right. it's always yeah
0: but i mean there's going to be a vacuum with no baseball i mean there's some, somebody's, somebody's got to fill, fill
2: it. it in that's right that's right um no but i mean but more seriously um yeah i mean i, I think that you know it just showed i'm just kind of shocked at the degree to which we don't care about baseball in the middle of
0: August. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, because I mean, the royal, e- the royal we there is. is oh yeah, I don't,
2: yeah, I, 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 work. I, yeah. I shouldn't. Okay, I'm sorry. Are you are you guys huge? Are you guys missing Orioles, uh, Blue Jays games right Not now? I get my that... fill
1: of Orioles classic on, okay. uh, on <laughs> <Okay>. the local
2: <laughs> network. They were playing the Pirates last week. It was
1: awesome. Oh, oh really the go.
0: other thing is that the other thing that should be mentioned is the calendar. Like the NBA also benefits from basically being able to go right into the playoffs, which is a huge moneymaker. They're going to only do eight regular season games left. I'd imagine if baseball had played all of its regular season or most of its regular season and could just go directly into the playoffs, we'd have a lot more harmony mm-hmm. because there wouldn't be the issue around losing all this money. But the right.
1: gulf between these two sides is just so big.
0: I mean, the the owners want to play... And they want the players to take huge, huge pay Yeah, I mean, they, they, they the players
1: agreed to take a pro rata share for how many games they played. That was the first step. And then the owners claim that the players agreed also to renegotiate that if... There were no fans. Um, The players dispute that. So then the owners are saying, well, let's play 48 games because that cuts our losses. And the players counter with 114 games, which was like a non-starter completely, with the most minimal sort of concession, deferring some salary or some payments until next year. And there's no real middle ground. I mean, Jeff Passan and Buster Olney of ESPN are sort of coming up with these permutations and trying to run the math which is kind of impossible to do because the owners' claims of $4 billion in potential losses are completely unsubstantiated. Dave Edwards on Fangraphs did an analysis questioning whether the owners would lose anything under certain scenarios because of the way they count their revenue. But Passen came to the conclusion that, you know, that, that – Under the owner's proposal, they would lose something like $10 million per team for the whole season, and that if they met halfway, it would be like another $2 million per team, and that the players should agree to a little bit more of a haircut, the owner's, like— came back after their first proposal and told the players that they wanted to cut as much as 33% more from what they'd get paid, and most of that burden would be borne by the highest-paid players. Um, Brett Anderson of the the Brewers, a pitcher, tweeted out, interesting strategy of making the best, most marketable players potentially look like the bad guys. And Blake Snell, pitcher for the the Rays, uh, had this incredible rant on i want to call it a rant
2: monologue on
1: his twitch feed should we listen to that for a minute sure sure
2: you know what i'm saying like i ain't making shit and on top of that so all that money's gone and now i, I play risking my life and and what and if i get the rona on top of that if i get the rona guess what happens with that oh yeah that stay that's in my body forever that damage is not gonna be like the damage that was done to my body that's gonna be there forever so now i gotta play with that on top of that so Y'all got, I mean, y'all got to understand, man. For me to go, for me to take a pay cut is not happening because the risk is through the roof. It's a shorter season, less pay. Like, bro, it's, yeah, man, I got to, no, I got to get my money. I'm not playing unless I get mine, okay? That's my new favorite baseball player, by the way. I mean, I, I, I was shocked to find out that Blake Snell is from Seattle. But, it, but it, but. <laughs> i just i did not see that coming but i mean yeah i think he makes a good point and i don't know enough about the numbers like you know because i mean none of us really know enough about the numbers to know where to fall on this but it seems reasonable to me that if you're asking the players to take a pay cut and risk their health That maybe that seems unreasonable. Like, I mean, so I don't, you know, it it really depends on like what you believe the owner's losses are and how, and how deep those losses might be. But I could understand wanting your full salary or wanting a bonus or wanting a fully guaranteed pro rata salary is compensation for not only risking your health and risking long-term complications to your health, because we don't, we still don't know what coronavirus can do to your body, but also you're going to have to make a lot of adjustments for living in this bubble, or you know, se- you know, segregating yourself or separating yourself from your family and your friends. Or if your family and friends have to be with you inside that bubble, it's still going to deeply curtail whatever your life was about. And I can understand the players saying, "Hey, look, you all are billionaires. You know, you're asking us millionaires to take these cuts with and risk our lives, and that doesn't just seem reasonable to me."
0: Paying the players a prorated salary-based, how many games there are. Um, that makes sense to me. And Stefan, you mentioned before some piece arguing that teams aren't actually losing money. Like, how, how could they not be losing money? That that doesn't make sense to me.
1: The piece was by, as I mentioned, Dave Edwards on Fangraphs. And what he's arguing is that television revenue, playoff television revenue, and other revenue that typically the owners, I think, shield from their general Pool of baseball revenue mean that the the losses are much going to be much lower than what the owners coming out and just saying four billion dollars might be. But there's
0: always TV revenue and and playoff TV revenue. Like, he's saying that there's going to be more this year?
1: Yeah, there's the, the central revenue is not included in baseball's estimate. Um, cuts in amateur spending aren't being factored factored in. That there mm-hmm. are a lot of other potential money-saving uh, courses of action here. They are firing
2: all their minor leaguers. Operations costs, right? There's got to be a lot of operations costs that will no longer be a part of the equation, Right.
1: Right. So, I mean, basically what it's arguing is that if you look at the numbers, $4 billion is probably way inflated. We don't exactly know how much. um, But at the same time, we don't know what to trust when it comes to baseball's numbers. And that's one of the points that the union repeatedly makes, that until baseball shows us genuine, you know, verifiable um accounting worthy numbers that we can take and analyze, we're not gonna believe your your claims. And that goes back to this issue of of trust.
2: To your point about trust, Stefan, you know, we're talking about how the NBA and Adam Silver and the players are all on one accord and they're a model for labor peace. They still haven't figured it all out, right? Because they're still some uncertainty around which coaches will be allowed to be on the bench and all this other workup stuff. Like we, you know, the NBA can say that it's going to play and they can put together a schedule and they can have a site and everything else, but that does not mean that it's going to work out the way that they say that it does. And like, like, it seems to me the Rockets not knowing whether or not it's safe for Mike D'Antoni to be on the bench mm-hmm. is a big deal, right? But like they haven't worked that out yet, but they still are saying we're going to play these games. And so even though the NBA seems like they're full steam ahead, there are going to be complications that we that they can't foresee and that we can't foresee. And that just because they're playing, it doesn't mean that they're doing it right. It just means that they're all on the same page.
0: Great point. For D'Antoni, could they put a robot out there with a mustache <laughs> and just have him... <laughs> like, be able to look through the robot's eyes? Would that really make that much of a difference?
2: Isn't there a Dave D'Antoni and his younger brother, a coach, too? Well, maybe they could just have him out there and sub him in.
0: Clones, maybe? Yeah, I maybe. mean, there are a bunch of different options. I think we need to be open-minded about this. But no, that's that's a great point. Um, I think that the counter to that would be, okay, if things don't work out, if you have a good relationship between all parties, then, um, and there's trust there, you can figure out, okay, what's our next step? What's our next step after that? Everybody is it seems, and maybe we'll find out, um, there'll be some reporting suggesting that this isn't correct, that there's some undercurrent of dissatisfaction. But everybody, it's if, if it seems like everybody's like on the same page, everybody agrees that this is the right strategy for right now, that doesn't mean that um, you know, they can't change at some point down. We're the road.
2: looking at this though as a labor dispute and not a dispute about whether or not anybody should even be trying to play sports right now. You know what I mean? Like, we, like we're like we already sort of accepting yep. in terms of the, the 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 discussion on the leagues' terms. You know, they're saying, oh, we're going to play. We're going to figure out how to play. But nobody is really still sort of questioning whether or not they should even be trying. And I think maybe some of that is because, you know, quarantine fatigue. We've seen people out in the streets right now, yep. you know, protesting <laughs> and everything. And so it doesn't quite seem like people believe that we're still in the middle of a pandemic, but there are places in Texas and California and Arizona that are still like having these surges in infection rate. And so, I mean, I guess, you know, I understand again, like, I mean, this I feel like I'm a broken record at this point that yes, I want to see sports. Yes, that like, you know, it's great that they're on the same page and they can agree on all this sort of stuff. And I want to see basketball too, but it just doesn't seem like anybody is really taking the health threat to this as seriously as they should be. And I hope that we don't have to find out in a really dramatic way like how dangerous this is hello it is ryan and i was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on chumbacasino.com i looked over the person sitting next to me and you know what they were doing they're also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's ChumbaCasino.com and live the Chumba life.
3: No purchase necessary. VTW. Revoid. prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. All
0: right. I wanted to let you know that in this week's bonus segment, we are going to continue the conversation we just had about the NFL, Roger Goodell, Drew Brees, Black Lives Matter, Neil Lang, Colin Kaepernick, and all of these and many more subjects. Maybe not many more, just those subjects. But we had a lot more to say, and you'll be able to hear it if you are a Slate Plus member. You can sign up if you're not a member already, slate.com hangup plus. It's just $35 for the first year, slate.com hangup plus.
1: In the early to mid-1970s, I was the perfect age to be a Bruce Lee fan, a fan, that is, of someone kicking a lot of ass in action movies. But I wasn't, and I don't remember any of my friends being either. Why? No doubt because of some of the entrenched prejudices of suburban America, and also the received messages of Asian stereotypes in pop culture. I mean, the song Kung Fu Fighting by Carl Douglas topped the Billboard charts when I was 11, My adolescent brain probably viewed Bruce Lee as another Asian caricature, kung fu fighting on the big screen. To be totally honest, until last week, I hadn't ever even seen a Bruce Lee movie. And at this point, I probably wouldn't have if not for the creative and philosophical documentary about the life of Bruce Lee, B. Water. The film debuted on Sunday on ESPN and is now available on ESPN+. Plus. B. Water is directed by Bao Wynn and he joins us now. Congratulations on the film, Bao, and thanks a lot for coming on the podcast.
3: Yeah, thank you so much for having me.
1: The Bruce Lee that you reveal is driven first and foremost to shatter stereotypes and succeed in a racist America, but he's also, of course, crazy athletic, a genuine physical specimen. I assume you made the film before ESPN acquired the rights to air it. When you started the
3: project, did you view Bruce Lee
1: as an athlete?
3: Well, I mean, it's funny because you were right right and wrong in your assumption because Um, they, they came on, uh, when I had the idea, but they were during production, they were, they were, they had signed on already. And I didn't think about approaching ESPN when we were looking for broadcasters. Um, we were looking at kind of the more traditional ones that, you know, a biopic, uh, documentary would be a more appropriate fit. And so my producer when we were kind of running into walls just because of various issues with uh, access and, um, and cost uh, my producers like, what about ESPN? And I, they were not on my list whatsoever uh, just because as you said, I, I don't view Bruce Lee as kind of the most straightforward sports figure. As you said, he's athletic. He's obviously this specimen of physical strength and agility, but he never, um, you know, really participated in competitive sports. But when you think of the idea of sport and just um, martial arts, obviously mixed martial arts is a huge field now. um, And that did not exist when Bruce Lee was around. People often call him, you know, the father of mixed martial arts. And I think uh, his interactions with um, Kareem Abdul-Jabbar and just his uh, adaptation of uh, especially African-American boxers like Muhammad Ali infuse this idea of bruce being a sports figure and what i came across to making the film is even though he was not a traditional sports figure and espn is also their 30 for 30 series is not kind of a traditional straightforward documentary sports documentary series i thought it was a kind of a perfect vessel for bruce's story in the same way uh oj made in america uses oj just as an athletic figure but goes into kind of deeper context about racial history in America and uh, with the topics that I wanted to look at with Bruce Lee. And, um, you know, one thing about the film is how Bruce uses his quote unquote sport to connect uh, to the American community when he first arrives as an immigrant, right? And I, I kind of um, connect to that idea, too, because every time I travel, when I don't know a language, when I don't know a culture... If I go to a sports club, if I go to an outdoor like screening, like a soccer game, that's when I feel most connected with with, you know, different uh, people from all over the world. And I think Bruce kind of used sport in the same way.
2: I kind of want to go back to something you just mentioned a second ago, because I, I'm curious, did you want to as much tell the story of bruce lee or were you looking at a way to like sort of reflect the lens of anti-asian racism and like use because obviously that's a big through line of the documentary right so like w- how did <laughs> organically how did the story happen were you like I, I need a lens to tell this story or bruce lee is the story i want to tell and that became a part of it
3: when i first came out with the concept of doing a bruce lee film it, it came about because you know, I, I live in L.A. now and I work in the industry and there's this conversation, this dialogue about inclusion, diversity, representation that has in some way become trendy. And I was thinking, OK, it's, it's already hard enough for an actor, actress of color to make it in Hollywood today. How did someone like Bruce Lee become Bruce Lee in the 1960s when uh, the Vietnam War was just starting to boil up? 10 years earlier was the Korean War, and then two decades earlier was uh, World War II, where the Japanese were obviously the enemy. So at America in the 1960s, the Asian-American male was very much the enemy to, uh, I think, most Americans. uh, And so I wanted to kind of dive deep into those two kind of aspects, just like uh, Bruce Lee and how he overcame that struggle and what that struggle was. So unpacking, you know, the mythology. I think a lot of Bruce Lee films that I've seen in the past are about the impact, the legacy of Bruce Lee. And I didn't know him as much as a person. I knew him as the icon. And for me, I always try to make, or I personally, when I watch a film or watch something about a hero, if I can relate to them, I, you know, it's, it's better to aspire to a hero you can relate to instead of a hero that's sort of unattainable. That's, mythical in a a way. And so I I always view the film as these two narratives, the coming of age of Bruce Lee, and then the coming of history of America, the coming of history of the Asian American male, to the point where Bruce Lee is rejected to play the lead, you know, in the series Kung Fu. How can someone with the charisma, the on-screen presence of Bruce Lee, not, you know, who would not cast Bruce Lee? If you look at it back in hindsight, it's like, they were crazy not to cast Bruce Lee.
2: Obviously, his father was involved in entertainment, right? Um, but you, for people that may not understand, can you explain why he thought it made sense to even try to make a name in Hollywood at that time? Because it seems like, in retrospect, ridiculous. Like, how could he have ever, you know, gone up against that <laughs> that intractable force?
3: Well, I think when he first arrived to America, he didn't have the goal or ambition to to follow in his childhood footsteps, you know, his childhood uh, vocation of being an actor, because he saw how the Asian American was viewed uh, on screen. Uh, it's easy for an Asian to be a star in Asia because everyone looks like you, right? But being a, a Asian star in America is very difficult because the, the the betrayal of an Asian at that time is reflective of society and how society views the Asian American. And again, at that point in time, uh, the Asian American was the enemy. So they would be portrayed as the villain. Uh, they would be portrayed as kind of like collateral damage in, in war films. And also they would be portrayed in, in more comedic ways as the bumbling servant, the heavily accented sidekick. So Bruce wanted no part in that. He was just like, I know who I am. Or I, I mean, I know who, you know, I have a confidence and a charisma in me. I'm, I want to teach my Chinese culture and share my Chinese culture. And he felt that martial arts, Kung Fu, Wing Chun was the best way to do that. Um, and it just happened that someone, you know, William Dozier uh, got a call from Jay Sebring, uh, who was, you know, the hair cutter of the stars at the time. And saw, saw Bruce performing at in Long Beach in 1964, that that's what started the whole Bruce becoming Bruce Lee. He, he never had this aspiration, but it, it was just a coincidence in many ways.
0: There's a you know segment of the film where you talk about Bruce being a kind of mentor and friend to um, Hollywood stars like Steve McQueen and James Coburn. And so he's given entree into this world in this kind of particular way that they there's some social cachet to having Bruce Lee, this like cool Chinese guy, as your friend and your Mentor, and yet there's still this this barrier and this ceiling, and I thought that was really interesting. That it's not like he gets completely shut out of this world. He gets really, really close to it, but there's still just this um, these barriers that can't be breached, even for people that seem to understand and appreciate his talent.
3: Yeah, I mean, it's we we talk about it in the film. We have a cultural critic named Jeff Chang who gives some commentary, and he. I think he lays it out quite viscerally and primally that Hollywood's racist because America's racist, right? America at that time, or Hollywood at that time, and Hollywood today—it's it's it's this business, it's show business, and they never thought that an audience, a large audience, suburban audience, would not would would accept an Asian hero. And I think just that mentality permeates and and cements itself into. Hollywood and every the industry and people aren't able to break out of it. And even in that time of the '60s, where people are quite are growing more progressive and and uh finding Eastern ways and philosophy and lifestyle as part of their own, um you know, daily lives, it, it you know Bruce Lee becomes like a pariah in so many ways. That yeah, we're just he's a cool like Asian guy that we're just gonna hang out with to make ourselves seem a little more worldly, I would say. And not to say that was everyone that he met, but I think if they weren't willing to give him a chance into the industry and they saw how much power he could exert, how much charisma he had, maybe there was a fear, too, of letting someone who has much more charisma um, into an industry where you can't replicate that
0: if you had one chinese guy then maybe there would be two and then three (laughs) then the chinese
3: would take over right
0: and the the
1: thing that jeff chang says in that in that uh sequence bow is that hollywood's racist because america's racist and hollywood makes america more racist he talks about this vicious circle and lee had opportunities in the mid-60s, right? He was he was widely praised and became sort of a, a cult figure for his portrayal of Cato in the TV show The Green Hornet, um, and was advocating for himself in terms of coming up with ideas for TV shows and getting meetings with producers. But ultimately, what you talk about is what comes back to haunt him. When they cast the show Kung Fu that was his idea, they end up choosing David Carradine to play the lead. Um which is you know, one of the, 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 the most horrific things that Hollywood perpetrated
3: yeah I mean you it, it boggles the mind again looking at it in hindsight right um, but maybe there's a silver lining that he didn't get the role in kung Fu because then he would not have gone to Hong Kong and made right. these amazing films Enter the Dragon might have never happened if kung Fu happened and Bruce could have been just a... Great TV actor, um, but uh, Tom Kuhn and and you know it's sad that I don't we don't include this in the film, but he does make the statement. And when I spoke to him, is like Bruce was always bigger than just that television box. He needed a bigger canvas, and I mean maybe Tom is also trying to negate some of the impact that he 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 caused by not hiring Bruce. But he's also a man that works for Warner Brothers, a big studio, who, again, it's... I mean, Bruce is very diplomatic about it in his interview with Pierre Burton, where he says, you know, I, I don't blame them. I don't blame them for not hiring, like, an Asian actor for for an American um, series. Um, but the, he, I think he's diplomatic on, on camera towards the press. But talking to Linda, he was quite angry and just couldn't believe again, because he believed in himself so much that someone else wouldn't believe in him, which there's a naivete to it. Um, but it also created this drive he had, again, to find a different path for himself, to be fluid like water,
2: <laughs> right? <laughs> yeah, Stefan mentioned it. Not, and, I, and I'll say, I, I had never seen a Bruce Lee movie, right? And, and I, I'm on it after this. But I'm sort of, I read about uh, your Sort of first introduction to Bruce Lee as a you know as a preteen growing up in Montgomery County, just like our Slow Burn producer Christopher Johnson, shout out. But I know that you know you grew you know you became aware of him as a preteen. Can you kind of like you know explain that to our listeners so that they know that you know what what sort of appealed to him to you immediately at that age.
3: Yeah, I mean, I grew up uh, in the late 80s. I was born 10 years after Enter the Dragon came out. So I I wasn't going to see his films in theaters like in Chinatowns or uh, certain, you know, urban areas of America. My first um, introduction to Bruce Lee was when I was like, yeah, eight or nine years old. And I saw him on television. It was like Enter the Dragon was uh, playing like a Saturday afternoon, evening uh, screening and um, I just remember being kind of awe-inspired because I never s- saw a hero that looked like me on screen. I've seen myself on screen in negative ways in which I rejected, um, again, and, and, and as the bumbling sidekick, as the uh, comic relief. But to see someone who looked like me, who was being the lead in a film, that was something that was just life-altering in many ways. And I think people don't understand what that means especially uh part of the majority culture who is used to seeing themselves in many multifaceted ways and and being played by people that look like them young and old but those opportunities are almost non-existent uh for a lot of people of color um Mm. they they see themselves in the ways that are portrayed through film and television and that's why i think the The idea of representation, the idea of inclusion is so important because, you know, I mean, for the past few months, people have been stuck at home watching television, watching films, and that had little interaction with society outside, right? With their neighbor, with uh, their community. So what they see on screen almost turns into their reality, right? It turns into their idea of what your neighbor is, what your neighbor is going to do. Like it creates these stereotypes. And that's why, you know, authenticity and representation is so important, because it's not just me, how I see myself on screen, but it's how other people see me on screen. And people kind of forget that, that it's, you know, there's two layers to it.
0: So this film just feels like it's in conversation, what's going on uh, in America right now with the protest movement. It seems like no coincidence to me that, you know, the two athletes that are really featured prominently in this film are... Black athletes who are also social activists and civil rights activists and Muhammad Ali and Kareem Abdul-Jabbar. Um, there's also discussion in the film about the model minority myth and how Asians and Black people often get pitted against each other. Um, that was a, a main undercurrent in the LA riots. And so just wondering if you were able to find out sort of what Bruce Lee thought about the Black civil rights movement, how he saw it. What he was trying to accomplish, sort of being in conversation with that.
3: For me, just talking to the people who knew him best, um, I learned that Bruce Lee was very much a student as much as he was a teacher. Again, he was known as a teacher to these celebrities and to uh, a lot of communities when he first moved to America. Um, But because he was a student of everyone he met, it informed his view of America, it informed his view of race. I think his upbringing in Hong Kong, too you know, where the systems of oppression can be seen through uh, British colonialism at that time. And even, uh, you know, when he first arrived, he was too young to to witness uh, firsthand, like, the Japanese occupation. But surely his education in Hong Kong taught him about that type of oppression as well. So I think that really solidified uh, his viewpoint. Uh, you know, as an underdog against, uh, an oppressive ruler. Um, but when he first arrived in America, his, uh, his student, Jesse Glover, who was his first student, first friend, um, was an African American man and he was a victim of police brutality. And that was one of the reasons that he wanted to learn martial arts to defend himself against these systems of power. Um, and that that person becoming your first friend in America can be really formative, right? And I think, uh, you know, I can't speak for Bruce Lee, but just there's a pattern of of these of these individuals who really help mold him uh, to become uh, someone who stands up against a racial oppression, against prejudice. Uh, his second, or one of the other people that he met very early on in Seattle was Amy Sando, uh, his first love. His, girlfriend in America, and she was Japanese-American, and she was in the internment camps during World War II as a young girl. Uh, Again, these type of experiences of America that you you learn very early on are so formative in in the way that you think about race and the way that you treat other people. And obviously, later on, as you mentioned, Kareem Abdul-Jabbar was one of his most famous students. And Kareem told us that after they would work out, after they would train, uh, he would give Bruce uh, books about civil rights, about the Black Liberation Movement. And uh, Bruce was a prolific reader. So I'm sure Bruce absorbed all that information. It should be said that Bruce, it wasn't considered kind of a civil rights activist at that time in the same way a Marlon Brando or Harry Belafonte, Right. But it's, it's important to remember that he was a struggling actor who wasn't walking, he couldn't walk the front lines. He couldn't do stand side by side with Muhammad Ali necessarily and, and Martin Luther King. But what the film tries to profess is that his, his presence is his protest because he was never seen as being kind of a human, as a hero. So, him as a storyteller is the way that he represented.
1: It's interesting, and it reflects what you're just talking about, that, you know, he met Kareem Abdul-Jabbar when he was still Lou Alcindor and was an undergraduate at UCLA, and later gave Kareem a role in one of his movies, The Game of Death. And you mentioned Ali and his admiration for Ali. And one of my favorite sequences in Be Water is when you have Lee talking over cuts of him fighting Chuck Norris in The Way of the Dragon, and Ali fighting Cleveland Williams in 1966. Let's listen to a clip from that scene.
0: Oftentimes people come up and say, hey, Bruce, are you really that good? I say, well, if I tell you I'm good, probably you'll say I'm
3: both. If I tell you I'm no good, you know what i That's just pretty
0: good I have no fear of, of only thunder.
1: I mean, that scene to me was so powerful because it reflected both Lee's respect and admiration for ali and boxers and at the same time it also showed just how much of a student of of martial arts and sports and also the philosophy of fighting that he was
3: yeah he was very much a sponge and going back to the idea of him being a student i think that shows his humility in some ways that people if you talk about bruce lee you never talk about bruce lee's humility. And, um, his, his ability to blend all these different styles and, and form it into his own. Um, obviously that became, uh, his principle through Jeet Kune Do, his philosophy and his fighting style. And it, again, it informed his, his mantra in a way of being water, being fluid. You're never, you're never stuck into the form that you're given. You're, I mean, you're always kind of either, crashing around it or flowing through it in many ways and i think uh, that's i think if people know anything about bruce lee it's about his fluidity his agility and his his kind of um stance against rigidity and tradition in many ways and i think that also when you know when we talk about bruce lee in terms of civil rights and his progressiveness that is obviously a, a pretty strong example of that
1: the film is Be Water. It's directed by Bao Huin. You can watch it on ESPN+. Plus. Bao, thank you so much for coming on the show.
3: Thanks so much for having me, guys.
0: We became brothers that day when he did that to us. We made a change,
3: fighting for what we deserve.
0: Search for amazing sports stories wherever you get your BBC podcasts.
1: And now it is time for Afterballs. We mentioned that Bruce Lee cast Kareem Abdul-Jabbar in The Game of Death. There's a backstory to that movie. The Game of Death was being filmed in Hong Kong when Bruce Lee died. More than 100 minutes had been shot. Some of it was used for a documentary called Bruce Lee, A Warrior's Journey. And some of it was included in a workaround that was released in 1978 to cash in on Lee's posthumous fame. The climactic scene is a fight between the five-foot-eight Lee wearing what appears to be a yellow Power Rangers jumpsuit and the seven-foot-two Kareem in sunglasses and short shorts. It runs to nearly 10 minutes in its original, and there's almost no dialogue, perhaps with reason. Let's listen to one of the clips.
0: Little fellow, you must have given up the hope of living. Uh Uh-uh. On the contrary, I do not let the word death bother me. Same here, baby. Then what are you waiting
4: for? Wow.
1: (laughs) The brawl commences. Kareem has got some moves. He trained with Lee, as I think we mentioned. Um, And it's fantastic. It concludes with Lee choking Kareem to death. So let us honor Lee and Kareem with our afterball name, the name of Kareem's character in the game of death. Mantis, the fifth-floor guardian. Josh, what's your Mantis, the fifth-floor guardian?
0: Uh, on the contrary, doesn't sound cool, even when Bruce Lee says it, I think we've <laughs> determined. <laughs> I wanted to give the Hang Up and Listen Twitter Thread of the Week Award, which is a time-honored and um, just hugely important and influential award. Coveted, uh, covetted, I think. Coveted. I mm-hmm. want to give it to Martellus Bennett. For his uh, thread in response to uh, Drew Brees' comments uh, discussed at length earlier in this program. It was a long thread. You should read it. We'll link to it in our show notes. But um, it starts out with Bennett saying, tell me one white QB that truly stands for something other than their Captain America images. Look, I'm happy they're saying something, but when they had a chance to make a big play for their Black teammates and colleagues, most of them remained silent, showed ignorance, or didn't say anything of importance when it was really needed. We didn't mention earlier Aaron Rodgers, who did actually say something. He was one of the players who did speak up after um, Breeze's comments. So that is worth noting. Um, And so that was, I think, powerful and correct what Bennett said. Um, But he said something else later in the thread that I also wanted to mention. He says, the NFL is racist. The main reason they don't have black coaches is because of racism, not because they aren't qualified. You already know how the white owners who hire coaches feel about black players, the same way they feel about black coaches. The difference is that they need the black players to make the league work. They don't need the black coaches in order for it to work. I can't remember if I said at the top of this Martel Bennett, long time tight end and uh, the NFL played for the Patriots. Really smart guy, was uh, thoughtful in the league and has been thoughtful outside of the league. Um, A Houston that,
2: native, by the way. Go
0: ahead. There you go. But it was that last. Tweet that really kind of shook something up for me and I I thought was a really great point. Um, that one being they don't need the black coaches in order for it to work. But I think we can flip that around, Joel. The league doesn't need white coaches to for it to work either. The league definitely needs black players to work. That we yeah. must stipulate. But um, the coaches um, you know, don't have to be any particular race. And the thing that I was thinking about was, would anybody make an argument with a straight face that the league would be any worse if all of the coaches were black? To me, it seems like self-evidently, the answer is no. But it just seems like, I don't know, just the way that he framed it made me think about this in a different way. And I know you've been thinking about this stuff too, Joel.
2: Yeah. Well, I mean, also, I mean, there's really no way to do a one-on-one comparison, but it's instructive to know that many of the earliest black players that are in the NFL Hall of Fame, for instance, learned the game under historically black college coaches who were black, right? So, I mean, there was some deve- some talent identification and development. They were able to find players, develop them, make them great and send them on to the NFL. So, I mean, we do know that like black coaches do have some competency in that way that they've produced, you know, generations of athletes that have gone on to great success in the NFL. But I mean, that's not the same thing as running an NFL team, obviously. Right. But the other thing I think about is maybe the players are sort of realizing that the white coaches are not quite as essential or that their sort of their reign over these programs is not that is sort of assumed and not a given. And I th- I thought about that because of the way that Florida State defensive lineman, probably the best player on the team, Marvin Wilson, also a Houston native. And and I think of what, you know, Marvin Wilson said about, you know, the new head coach at FSU, Mike Norvell that, you know, Mike Norvell had said in a tweet last week that he had spoken to all 85 of his players and, you know, uh, individually. And Marvin Wilson came out on Twitter and said, oh, no, he didn't. Coach line, That's bullshit. Which is an unfathomable breach of protocol within a college football team. Or it would have been even five years ago. And for players to speak up in this way now lets me know, or at least it seems to indicate that they have a growing sense of, you know, their importance to the game and their influence and power and that maybe they're thinking of harnessing it in some ways. I don't know.
0: I guess the thing that we'll have to wait and see is if like this is a kind of Rumspringa situation here Mm -hmm. where it's like, all right, the players can talk, can say that, you know, fuck Drew Brees or say fuck Mike Norvell for like a month. And then once everything, quote-unquote, calms down, once everything, quote-unquote, goes back to normal, then the regular hierarchies will reassert themselves? Or is this some sort of fundamental shift happening? I know you're kind of pessimistic by nature in a lot of these matters, Joel, but do you think that, you know, once Marvin Wilson says something like this, is, the, is Marvin Wilson going to, like, shut up now, for, forever? Or are other players going to now be like, yeah, I'm not going to say anything?
2: That's a, I mean, that's a great question. Um, I mean, because we're sort of in unprecedented times, right? So we don't know what's going to happen. But what we do know is that all of the pi- power dynamics are against the players. The coaches control their scholarships. You know, they control their playing time. Um, they control where they live and what classes they take in a lot of ways, right? So they can make it really difficult for players, which is why the absence of a union or some sort of, you know, b- national body that looks out for the interests of athletes is, you know, this would be a really good time for them to start advocating for that or to start thinking about that, right? But yeah, I am cynical about this sort of stuff. And you see it with the Drew Brees situation in New Orleans, like, Drew Brees said his deal. The players are like, all right, we're good now. You know, we, that's our quarterback. That's our guy. And let's focus on winning. And it always sort of comes back to keeping the money train going, keeping the winning going, focusing on, you know, the, uh, this very narrow slice of their lives. And I'll just be curious to see, you know, two months from now, you know, what Marvin
0: Wilson is saying about Mike Norvell. Stefan, what is your mantis guardian of the fifth floor?
1: It seems like a long time ago, but a couple of weeks ago, I compiled all of these sports-related mini-obituaries from the New York Times' incalculable loss project, and a few of them jumped out at me. Uh, the one-line life summary just wasn't enough. Mary Roman, 84, Norwalk, Connecticut, shot put champion in fixture in local politics. Turns out she had polio as a child, became a standout athlete, and in her 60s, after the death of her husband, started putting the shot and set American and world-age records into her 80s. Sean Christian Kevel, 47, New Providence, New Jersey, enjoyed talking sports with family. He did more than talk. The dude was a second-team All-America D3 quarterback at Moravian College in Pennsylvania. He threw for more than 6,000 yards and 48 touchdowns, half of them in his senior year, set 12 school and five conference passing records. Then there was Boro Lalic, 68 Indianapolis, notorious for receiving the most holding calls. He was an all-state center and middle linebacker in high school and an offensive lineman at uh, Franklin College in Indiana. His team reached the 1972 NAIA Division II semifinals, and he was inducted into the school's Hall of Fame. I imagine the holding calls were a running joke with ex-teammates and family. But the one that really begged for more was this one. Paul Warwick, 86, Vineland, New Jersey, widely surmised he could have played Major League Baseball. Widely surmised? By whom? What stopped Paul Warwick from making the show? Well, I read his obituary in the Vineland Daily Journal and recollections from family and friends on Facebook, and I talked to his sons, Gary and Michael, on Zoom. Michael sent me the eulogy he delivered, also on Zoom, so I'll answer my second question first. What stopped Paul Warwick from playing in the majors? Life did, but not life in the sense of choosing between baseball and a job, or being drafted into the Army, or an ill-timed injury. Life in the sense of who Paul Warwick was. He was born in Poland in 1933, and six years later, fled the Nazis with his parents and four siblings. They traveled from Gdansk, La Ave, and then sailed to Havana. They stayed in Cuba for five years, flew to Miami, took a train to Philadelphia, lived among relatives in South Jersey, and then moved to Brooklyn. Paul loved sports, especially baseball. His mother threw his cleats on the roof to keep him from playing on the Sabbath. Paul didn't go to college. He attended a religious school in Baltimore. His mother wanted him to be a rabbi. He enlisted in the Army in 1955 and was stationed at Fort Benning in Georgia for two years. Afterward, an uncle put him to work in his lumber business in New Jersey, Paul eventually started his own. He married in 1960, had three kids, attended synagogue, supported his family. And he played a lot of sports. While in the Army, Paul finished third in the AAU National Four-Wall Handball Championship. He bowled, played softball, picked up golf in his 50s, and was immediately good at it. He played handball with the owner and players on the Philadelphia Eagles. He teamed up with his son Gary in racquetball tournaments, and he was a tournament table tennis player. Once in the early 90s, Gary, who's a sports marketer, took his dad to Arizona for the Foot Locker Slam Fest, which you might remember was a slam dunk contest featuring non-basketball players. Paul found himself across a ping pong table from Bo Jackson— Bo didn't know ping-pong. Paul crushed him. Somewhere along the way, the guy developed—maybe he was born with it—incredible hand-eye coordination, his son Michael said. He passed it on. Michael was a good high school athlete. Gary played basketball at NYU. One of Gary's sons plays professionally in Israel. Another is the starting point guard at Ithaca College. In his eulogy, Michael remembered watching his father in a synagogue softball league game track down a long fly ball effortlessly, on the run, glove outstretched. I was filled with wonder and pride, Michael said. For all of his other athletic skills, baseball was Paul's game. As a kid, he admired the Tiger star Hank Greenberg because Greenberg was Jewish. But as an adult, he loved Richie Ashburn of the Phillies because Ashburn was undersized, fast, covered acres in the outfield, just like Paul. That's where the line in the obituary was born. Michael's wife, Suzanne, wrote it, which answers my first question. Who widely surmised that Paul could have played Major League Baseball? His adoring family did. If he was at a different place at a different time, if his parents weren't right off the boat, who knows what could have happened, Michael told me. He didn't have a path, Gary said. Alzheimer stole some of Paul Warwick's final years, and he died of complications from the coronavirus on April 6th. His wife Alice had died 10 weeks earlier. The family found out that Paul was in the Times when a friend of one of Michael's sons noticed it and texted a screenshot. 100,000 COVID dead, 1,000 names in the paper, but there was Paul. Page one, fourth column, 20 lines from the bottom. Random to the nth degree, Michael said. It definitely doesn't sum up his life, but it was nice to get a little recognition. It was a little heartwarming, a
2: little bittersweet for sure. That's great, Stefan. Thanks, man. Yeah, man. Also, I mean, I just have to say, I mean, it's sufficient to say that he beat Bo Jackson in ping pong, not that he almost made the Major League Baseball. Because beating Bo in anything seems like an accomplishment enough that marriage, uh, you know, notice.
1: That is our show for today. Our producer is Melissa Kaplan. To listen to past shows and subscribe or just reach out, go to slate.com slash hangup, and you can email us at hangup at slate.com. If you're still here, I'm guessing you might want even more hangup in our bonus segment this week. Josh, Joel, and I continue our conversation about the NFL's response to the protests over
2: George Floyd's death. It should have been deeply insulting, to white fans who were not racist in the NFL to say, hey, look, I, this is not how I feel about protest and Black Lives Matter and Colin Kaepernick. But they always sort of assumed the worst about their fan base. And I'm talking about the NFL and Roger Goodell.
1: To hear that conversation, join Slate Plus for just $35 for the first year. You can sign up at slate.com hangup plus. For Josh Levine and Joel Anderson, I'm Stefan Fatsis. Remember Zelmo Beatty, and thanks for listening.